Hello and welcome to Economic and Political Weekly's podcast show Research Radio. I'm your host Abhishek and every week I give you a behind the scenes tour where academics tell us about their research. Based on case studies in Bangladesh, Professor Anu Mohammad will join us to discuss NGOs, how did they emerge, how have some become corporatized and much more. His research is particularly insightful because Bangladesh hosts the largest NGO BRAC and the largest microfinance institution Grameen Bank. Dr. Mohammad teaches economics at the Jahangirnagar University in Dhaka, Bangladesh. His research interests include globalization, social justice and transformation, gender, NGOs and energy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Would you like to start by telling us about Grameen Bank and what made you interested in focusing on it and NGOs at large in Bangladesh? During 1970s, it is it coincided with our liberation war and our independence, but it emerged in global scale in this NGO operations in 1970s, early 70s, when World Bank McNamara made that lecture and shifted policies of World Bank to more focus on poverty alleviation etc and started funding different NGO type organization in the early 70s then it became a phenomena after war there was a huge demand for rehabilitation and reconstruction then certain organization from the international uh, arena like Oxfam care they started work and they extended their work in rural areas so in by 19 late 1970s we experienced birth of new ngos like koshika and brack they very quickly expanded their operation in rural areas especially after 1974 famine because of government inability to address uh, famine situation some organizations showed that they can do they could do better than the government administration During 19, uh, late 1970s, we experienced this new organization claiming that their agenda is to change social inequalities, social discrimination, and many of them were claiming that they have come to work to make some radical changes in, in, in the society. So there was a tension between left organizations, uh, farmers organizations, and NGOs and sort of tension and competition so and at that time i i was curious to understand the mechanism of NGOs and i i visited different places i met the new NGO leaders and tried to understand their operations in rural areas so it was in late 1970s it's important that you're mentioning that there was tension and even competition between left organizations farmers organizations and trade unions during the initial rise of NGOs you've already started talking about some of the events such as the bangladesh liberation war and and the famine that contributed to the rise of NGOs as well can you tell me more about the ways in which the world bank and the international monetary fund gained the support of the bangladeshi government bangladesh liberation war was against pakistan uh, military rulers and uh, pakistani military rulers military jamta was very close to us empire and the us administration harvard advisory group they were very close to pakistan development planning etc and world bank also very much close to pakistan during liberation war world bank's documents showed that they were not very happy with this uh, they call it disturbances 
this liberation war was written in their documents as disturbances and in 1972 the mood of bangladesh government new government was not very favorable to all that and when mr mcnamara on his own initiative not by invitation from bangladesh government mcnamara visited bangladesh and offered some assistance and during that period when he was uh, visiting bangladesh there was a meeting between prime minister and then prime minister was sheikh mujibur rahman and finance minister was tajuddin ahmed and during that meeting when mcnamara was asking the ministers that what can we offer to help bangladesh then tajuddin ahmed's response was we lost many bullocks in 1971 if you can supply us uh, much bullocks this sort of things then it could be helped so that was a clear message that bangladesh government and especially finance minister was not willing to get close to world bank that was the beginning phase but within a year that scenario was changed and bangladesh government made some arrangement made some agreements with world bank and imf and world bank started their operations with different type of prescriptions suggestions like privatization and reform liberalization etc then by 1973-74 uh, world bank and imf could make their entry into bangladesh economy and the, the governance system and the economic reforms were like became became a part of world bank's prescriptions henry kissinger in 1973 visited bangladesh and he was very annoyed with uh, the birth of bangladesh and he said that this is a bottomless basket and this will this will never be very useful case of development so that was that that, that was us perspective in, in the beginning and world bank and imf on their own they started pushing their agenda to bangladesh government and within bangladesh government there are some strong move to support world bank and imf so before 1975 killing of sheikh mujibur rahman bangladesh economy started playing with world bank and imf in 1975 bangladesh made a change parliament accepted one party rule and uh, they offered some some changes in 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 the economic system uh, with the support from soviet union so that could not uh, last long because 1975 sheikh mujibur was killed and military rule started again in bangladesh within four years uh, from pakistan because pakistan we experienced a long military rule so after that in after 1975 within that with that military rule world bank and imf was very much easily working with the ministries and with the government and their projects and their foreign aid and their uh, reforms officially structural adjustment programs we know that it is a 1980s phenomenon but before that we found that their recommendation the prescription from world bank imf these are all it was it was very similar to structural adjustment program so it started much before 1980 80s and the reforms like privatization and the liberal uh, liberalization and deregulation this all started slowly slowly and in 1982 we had another partial and these 1980s there was 8 to 9 years martial uh, military jamta rule and during that period there was a huge structural reforms according to world bank and imf's perceptions so in that period also we saw the growth of ngos and uh, the the major shift of bangladesh economy towards market economy right and why did the ngo model of development appear more effective to the bangladesh government and international financing organizations 
the model ngo model did not come from this is not brainchild of world bank or imf or us treasury it developed in different parts of the world and in that context bangladesh offered or contributed to think about or look at this model as very convenient in global capitalist system in bangladesh because of this war of liberation because of war time liberation war time different activities by different individuals like dr jafurullah choudhury or fazle hasan abed they started their some social work in during 1971 and they transformed this work into formal ngo after 1971 after they got support from international ngo like oxfam and other organizations so ngo model uh, gradually developed and appeared as very very potential alternative to to the radical transformation uh, by 19 early 1980s these organizations showed that they they can play well as delivery agency they can play well as as an organization which can take decisions very quickly which organizations are more efficient than the government administration and since bangladesh was suffering from huge poverty and uh, huge natural calamity problems uprooted people rural urban migration was very high and poverty was in the late 1970s it was like around 80% and uh, unemployment, unemployment problem was huge in that context the efficient local level organization which can deliver things better than government machinery was a huge uh, success and it was a, like an example that what should the state do in the beginning government was not that friendly to ngos because in the beginning ngos ngo leaders were much more ambitious they were like trying to do things like for example distribution of land among the rural poor or uh, fighting the rural powerful people against gender violation violation of women or uh, the corruption with this different state relief funds so the government machinery was very suspicious about about the ngos and were not very happy in the process after uh, the donor agencies prescription and the government regulation the ngos became like they revised their position and they became much more acceptable to the government and made some compromise to work with the government not to hostile government or local government leaders or bureaucrats during 1980s when structural adjustment program was going on when privatization was taking place when world bank and imf enjoying very powerful activity they are very much like guiding military government in 1980s what to do the the, the close down industries privatize the state owned industries and liberalize export and import all these things and during that period ngos became like very very convenient and uh, they were very happy world bank imf and international agencies are also in the process bangladesh government was very happy to deal with the poverty situation to deal with the local problems and gradually we found that in during 1980s it started in 1980s and it took a comprehensive shape in by late 1980s that all the projects from world bank imf usaid asian development bank all the projects have some conditionalities including to involve ngos as delivery agents so for that all the ministries to implement their uh, different foreign aided projects they had to involve ngos into their structures into their like committees decision making process and into their delivery operations 
So this integration, I think, became complete by late 1980s. It created a harmony among them to combat development programs, social safety net programs, and vulnerable group feeding, uh, rural uh, healthcare or education, all these things. Uh-huh. And focusing on the research that you conducted, we have a notes from the field segment where we'd like to learn about two particularly insightful experiences you had while implementing your research plan. I had conducted research in 12 districts and I had multiple research. In the beginning, that was like anthropological study and person-to-person discussion and following their activities and conversation and uh, experience with their activities in the beginning. In the 1980s, I visited different villages, different projects and different uh, NGO programs. Started from their central office, interviews with the NGO leaders and also the discussion and conversation with the receivers and the rural people. Also investigating the role of international agencies, international NGOs, World Bank, IMF, it, it, it was in 1980s. And in 1990s, I conducted a survey on micro-credit villages. And uh, in that survey, I took 1,200 samples where 600 who were taken microcredit and 600 who did not take. So that was a like a competitive study. The people, their standard of living, their income, their expenditure, their literacy, their women's empowerment, their occupations, etc. How these are affected by microcredit? Those who are taking and those who are not taking. Is there any difference? That was my main focus in 1990s. And later decade, I followed that and I revisited those villages and those areas to see that what is happening afterwards. Because in all these in all these years, these NGO operation also experienced different changes. During 1970s and early 1980s, BRAC had more social programs. Grameen Bank was not that important in our, in the in the in the 1980s. Nijarakori, Proshika, all these NGOs were very much active in different education, healthcare, and organizing landless, these type of programs. By 1990s, Brahmin Bank became very strong. They had much more branches in hundreds of branches around the country and almost reached every thanas. And back also reduced their social activity and increased business like that, like microcredit and also the handicrafts business. And they started cooperating with multinational companies like Monsanto, Unocal, and uh, in the later decade, they established Bank, Black Bank, where shareholder is from IFC, International Finance Corporation. They established Bikash, this money transfer programs, online money transfer program, Bikash. They established different type of uh, service activities. So all these things, NGO sector, I try to follow them and understand the changes within NGO sector and also their impact on the economy and the the body politic in general. Uh And were there specific experiences that tell us more about this contradiction? Yes, I, I noticed contradictions, many contradictions from the very beginning. Because when when I when I heard from NGO leaders that their work is to empower people, they believe in participatory development, uh, they don't believe in hierarchical system, they want participatory system. 
from the very beginning we i heard that from ngo leaders that they believe in uh, participatory development they don't believe in hierarchy system they don't want to take decision they don't want to impose decision from the top they want to take decision by participatory process within the from, within, uh, along with the receivers the poor people target group people. so this target group approach and participatory development these two are very fundamental thing of ngo model but when i visited areas and when i investigated their um, operational the procedure and uh, the decision making process i found that this is not at all the case because when they take a project they have to submit a project proposal to a funding agency and when they submit that proposal to funding agency the decision is made and what they do they sit with the people poor people and what they do they they submit their proposal to the funding agency because they, they all the their operations are dependent on the funding from international agencies so uh, they they need to they need to submit the proposal before they start the operation before they start the project so when they submit the project proposal and when that is approved the funding is approved then actually decision is made what they do then they sit with the people the poor people and give them a an impression that they are taking this decision but if anybody any employee within the ngo or outside ngo question anything or want to change anything it is it cannot be done because it is already taken decision it is already decided they have to implement this so what happened in the process that within ngo there are people who had these experiences and were punished for that for their dissenting voices we always hear that ngos are very democratic and they are for democracy they are for human rights they are for the poor people's right and the changing their lives etc and they like to hear voices of the poor all this all these rhetorics but what happens within ngo there, there is no there is no trade union activities the, the, the employees are not their job is not secure all the ngos it is very difficult to find an exception all the ngos are run by a single person or a group of person who are permanently there their their vision and their aspiration and their contact with international funding agencies are the driving force of their organizations so uh, there is no change in the leadership and i what i what i feel that this is a this is a new form of private ownership these owners are there they behave like owners and they can appoint and they can sack anybody they want and uh, all these things are, are, are totally contradictory what this what they say what they what they claim right and you've also noted how ngos have become a supplementary force of the local and global power structure are there a few examples that can explain the impact of ngos and i remember that you quote this article from the guardian that goes as far as to describe gramin bank as a parallel state brac is the largest ngo uh, in the world today and bangladesh government social safety net programs it is very difficult to find any social major programs which government is carrying it is very difficult to find that brac is not when international monetary fund and world bank came with prsp poverty reduction strategy plan in 1999 uh, we we saw that this whole process of prsp had a very good partner in brac brac became like a very important institutional uh, support for implementing all new liberal agenda in bangladesh 
including there are multinational corporations multinational capital who want to invest in in our country like for example uh, the big uh, seed business monsanto they work with brag and big business water business groups like givendi and others they work with gramin bank and gramin phone you know the Telenor, this Norwegian phone company, they found it very uh, profitable business with, with, with the support from Grameen Bank. All these organizations are, are becoming very strong supplementary institutional structure to make capitalist progress in Bangladesh to happen. Uh-huh. And you spoke about how NGO owners were usually connected to powerful politicians and industrialists. Usually, they're also from privileged backgrounds. They're cis male, upper class and caste, even though they position their organization as benefiting marginalized groups. Keeping this in mind, how should we approach examining the openings and opportunities that NGOs do offer? In the beginning, in 1970s and 80s, when that was working in the rural areas, like for example, they had they had been different schools at primary level. They did not continue at a scale what they intended, or they did not continue with the goal or extent of programs, education programs, because they changed their priorities. And the schools, most of the schools are not working anymore. But when they started the schools, that was very good. That was good in like the system of educating children. And there was like place for joy and learning things, new things. But that was one class in school. The black school is not, cannot be comparable with primary school. Like primary school, we, we know that one, two, three, four, five, five classes. But black school is one class for 20 students or 30 students. That is a small one, which they could run very when they started this this school program or birth control program and some uh, they were appointing some women in different projects then there was a resistance from from the religious groups or right-wing groups from the rural areas and at one point when it was became a very problematic and conflict became very strong then at one point in the early 90s that started compromising and leaving some projects which are not acceptable by the religious groups and appointing some people from the from the protesting powerful people from from the rural areas so these things happen and because of microcredit program we know that the microcredit mostly microcredit receivers are the women and that that made some impact uh, within the household level that when a woman is taking loan uh, she can command something but that that could not continue because of the gender relation is there and there was no strong a public mobilization in in favor of women's rights so what happened that the husband or brother uh, took over and in some cases what i referred in my study that there are study anthropological studies on on this issue can be seen that uh, this microcredit was used as a dowry in some cases in some cases, there was a like when the, it is interesting to note, it is important to note that the loan receivers are women mostly, but loan collectors, the Grameen Bank officials and bank officials, they are mostly men. And when we asked, what is the, what is the problem? The receivers are women. Why don't you appoint women in that position to collect this repayment, make that repayment? Their answer was the women are very soft. They cannot, cannot recollect. <laughs> they cannot take repayment. 
they cannot ensure repayment in time. So in order to ensure repayment and ensure their hard line, there were many instances of like repressive action. We found people who had to leave the rural areas. There are instances of suicide. There are instances of selling their uh, the last things they had. So there are many problems and many like issues which rural people did not like. In the beginning, Grameen Bank had had a compulsory precondition for taking loan that they must be very poor, ultra poor. But when it is, it is, it, it becomes clear that ultra poor people cannot repay money because ultra poor people, if they wholly depend on microcredit, then it is not possible to repay uh, that money with 20% interest every week without any interruption. They cannot continue because there are many things interrupt their process because they can they can be sick there can be problems of working there can be like, family problems there can be accidents they could not con they cannot continue so they changed their position and now Grameen bank loan receivers are mostly non poor the who have other sources of income for whom the microcredit is a supplementary income and who can invest this for their other business and who can repay from other business from remittance or other things so whole things what we know from their text i found and many research also found the different scenario and the poverty reduction the poverty line we have problems with the poverty line definition but if we consider if we accept that poverty line the reduction of poverty in the rural areas there are many factors behind this there are like migration of uh, people from rural areas to urban areas there are there are migration from the country to their their uh, migrant laborer their sending remittances the infrastructural development road and highways development the technological change all these things uh, have their effects on the rural economic lives but this microcredit i have found only five to ten percent people could uh, benefit from this microcredit but whole microcredit operation had and have their effect on rural economy in in terms of uh, commercialization in terms of like marketization in terms of linking poor to the market and in terms of making people rural people as a very good uh, area for financial investment right and other questions that you continue to investigate about ngos I have planned to make it further to understand the, the civil society. There is a like if you if you if you investigate different uh, private universities, private banks, different research organizations, and autonomous institutions. If we if you look at the board of directors of big NGOs, big business group, big banks, it is it, it is interesting to look at the the same people are there. Same people are like who are like who are working with NGO for poverty elevation the same people are working in the banks to make money the same people are patronizing the the, the government to continue with the repressive machine surveillance and, uh, and like anti people different steps the same people are leading in the in the uh, in the private universities the privatization of education privatization of healthcare all these things and this, this, there are you will find the, many of them very active in climate change different activities connected with climate change 
but all these people are like very much silent when it comes to uh, concrete issues like open pit mining or the coal-fired power plant near Sundarbans. Personal experiences when, when, when I ask NGO leaders, uh, environmental NGO, uh, when I ask them that when we are speaking against open pit mine which which can destroy our northern Bengal, why you are why you are silent? Why why don't you speak? And the clear answer was it will annoy government, it will annoy it will it will stop our, our funding from international agencies. We find that the people who are like very much well connected with the big NGO uh, and the government and very much active in climate change conferences around the world, but very much very very totally silent about the project uh, Rampal Coal Fire Power Plant, which is going to destroy Shundar. And it is a huge, huge destructive project for the coastal area of Bangladesh, not only Bangladesh, also in India. So they are, they are completely silent. So these people are like a part of ruling class in Bangladesh who are uh, leading the, the type of capitalism we are experiencing, which is uh, at, at one point, at, at, on the one side, very aggressively grabbing land, river, aggressively taking over banks, and also very much repressive state machine is there to support all these things. And these NGO people are not different or not disconnected with this ruling class. They are very much part of this ruling class. That is what I want to investigate further into my next. And since NGOs present themselves as prioritizing social justice, it in a way obscures its relationship to the impact of capitalism. I was interested in learning more about the specific research that you publish in EPW and the life that it had outside the pages of the journal. In 1987, I published my book. That book was very, people took it very seriously and they, they wanted this type of book to understand the process of NGOs and, and these, uh, uh, the state NGO and international uh, agencies, the relationship and uh, to decide about their role, about their position about these NGOs. And within NGO, there are there are thousands of uh, young people are working within NGO. It's a government bank, BRAC, and other NGOs, and they also need some support from intelligentsia to ensure their job because because their job is not secure. And then what their working hour is not is not limited, and uh, they are they are like their boss or the NGO leader always claim that they are working for people. So why you are talking about your working hour or your job security. So this type of like exploiting uh, the people to uh, uh, exploiting people and making some excuses in the name of people, they are doing that. So these uh, people within NGO needs like uh, exposure, needs uh, the social role and intelligentsia's position to 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 make uh, to expose the the rhetoric of NGOs. And this uh, this exposure is must be uh, this exp- exposure must be uh, in in the context of the global hegemony in Bangladesh and the rise of this ruling class uh, and the form of a huge primitive type of accumulation is taking place in Bangladesh today. Is there an example or two you would like to share? Uh, it it uh, it happened. People within people from NGO they are not that happy with this book. 
in our civil society most of the people are connected with to some extent ngos so in 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 many discussions in many discussions in many dialogues policy analysis there are some issues to make debates on this i think it is very important to continue with this investigation because our research world in bangladesh i don't know about india but in bangladesh it is very much absolute authority over research world absolute authority is enjoyed by the international financing organizations research outside independent research is very rare therefore therefore you will not get any fund from world bank or imf or adb or usaid or any other financing organization to make independent study on that or gramin bank or any other organization or ngo or its connection with the government and institution so this independent research is very important and i think it is uh, it is our responsibility to continue with this to show our fellow people to look in they cannot they cannot keep silence over it yes also i wanted to leave the floor open in case you had something that you'd like to share that i haven't asked about directly what i feel that different country has a different country has different different trajectory of capitalist development in, in the world we have different country different experiences in bangladesh i think it is a unique case where without land reform without any structural changes capitalist growth has has taken place and has has become a dominant system in bangladesh and in that process ngo became a factor ngo uh, made a leading uh, made an important role in that process if this is a learning for international global capitalism authority of global capitalism gurus they also take it as a learning thing from bangladesh but this ngo process is quite successful to to hide the bitter things to show that uh, in bangladesh capitalism is 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 developing with human face that is totally false this capitalism is 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 like many uh, any other capitalism and in 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 many cases much worse shape against people against uh, the environment what we are experiencing as a growth in our country capitalist growth it is at the cost of uh, the human lives at the cost of environment our rivers are dying our forests are almost gone our people's health care system you, you can hear you can read many claims for uh, in international publications that there is a huge success by black and other agencies in health healthcare activity uh, healthcare sector in bangladesh but practically bangladesh people of bangladesh are now very bad condition in healthcare facility it is it is much more expensive than the decade before much more inaccessible and in the in the corona time we are experiencing that there is no healthcare public healthcare system because there is no system which can give people any hope the education sector becomes much more commercialized much more expensive and much more pro rich the pro rich healthcare system pro rich uh, education system and grabber friendly uh, development all these things are happening with the in, in association with this so called human face ngos thank you so much professor mohammed for describing the corporatization of ngos in bangladesh thank you very much Something that professor said towards the beginning of the interview stuck with me that NGOs emerged around the time of Bangladesh's independence to fill the gaps of the government even today we see how NGOs are thriving because of the ineffectiveness of the government to do enough and in a timely manner 
I do recommend reading the full article he published in EPW and I shared a link to it in the description of this podcast. Research Radio is available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, GeoSavan, YouTube and wherever else you get your podcasts. It's been 10 weeks since we launched Research Radio and as we plan our new season we would love to hear from you. Ping us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter with your feedback about this episode or any episode from our season. Do leave us a rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. As always, if you like this episode or the season, do share it with interested folks. Take care and until next time.